Welcome to the Werewolf Den, where we do a deep dive into the core concepts and principles behind White Wolf's Werewolf the Apocalypse. I'm Amelin. And I am Ryan. Welcome back. So this is sort of a continuation of our Q&A. We had one question that came up regarding Rite of the Totem. <laughs> My favorite of the rituals. <laughs> And we both have a lot of experience running this in very different settings. Mm. So we figured we would sort of share that expertise. To start off, something to be mindful of is that with a pack totem, you've got something that your entire group is more or less bought into. Your tribal totem is something very personal to you. It's something that defines your way of perceiving the world, your outlook on life, things like that. A pack totem needs to reflect the values and ideals of the pack as a whole. It's entirely possible that you don't like your pack totem, but your pack as a whole has to like your pack totem. It's got to be something that unifies the group to some extent. The way I like to explain this to newer players is when you think about your tribal totem, think about it as if you are in a polytheistic religion and your tribal totem is the god within that pantheon that you have decided to worship. Whereas a pack totem is something very different. A god, a religion, that's something that's very personal to you. But pack totem is kind of more like... A guiding star. It is the way that helps your pack as a whole work together, come together as a cohesive whole, and guide you through the goals of what you are trying to do and succeed at within your game. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of different ways that you as a player can sort of approach this. In one of Amelin's games, I was really hoping to get a particular totem because I felt like everyone else in my pack was very, very lacking in this regard. I think it was Cockroach, where I had a lot of lupuses who were very sort of stereotypically lupus. They didn't like technology. Computers confused them. They didn't like any of this stuff. And I thought that having Cockroach as a pack totem would help them, like you said, to guide them towards being more adaptive. Not necessarily being technologically savvy, because I could handle that, but just being adaptive in their surroundings and not constantly defaulting back to that, I am a wolf, let me go hunt a rabbit. This was the way that my character perceived this. And so it can be a totem that you want to augment some of the strengths in your pack or to shell out a weakness, or it can be something that you really like. And so you want to share that with the other, like there are a lot of different ways to sort of approach your pack totem from the player's perspective, which I think is really cool. And the other thing to keep in mind then too, is from a storyteller's perspective, so so very often, we come across players who like to treat the pack totem basically as points on a sheet. It is a thing that gets you bonus willpower or bonus whatever to various different things. And here's the thing that you kind of need to keep in mind. When your pack chooses their totem, you're kind of almost choosing the NPC that your storyteller has to now view the games through for the rest of the chronicle. Yeah, it's it's going to be a DM NPC in a sort of sense. Mm -hmm. It's not that DM NPC that comes in and like stereotypically swoops in and steals your kills and all your XP. Right. But your storyteller, when you choose your pack totem, is basically just going to have to start embodying that and viewing everything you do 
through the perspective of that totem in order to make sure that they're dealing out renown properly, in order to make sure that they are making sure that you are upholding to bands or doing chiminage properly, or if you're trying to gain another spirit's favor, and that spirit's kind of, whoa, what's that? Your storyteller has to keep those sorts of things into account. So you kind of got to be generous with your storytellers too, because you don't want your storyteller playing a totem that's going to be antagonistic to the group. And just from the storytellers need to have fun too, hopefully it's a spirit that the storyteller enjoys playing. So STs and players kind of keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. Working from that then, you can go very... Very simple with this. Very frequently, a lot of people will be like, Hey, Storyteller, here's the totem that our pack wants. Can we have it? And Storyteller will be like, Okay, we'll do some downtime ritual stuff like that, and then run the totem. That's boring. But that is generally the faster way to do it. Ryan and I each have our own methods for running this, though. Ryan has a scenarios for how he runs it when he runs LARPs, because he has to deal with large groups. I have... A very different scenario for how I run with tabletops, because now I have to zero in on a group of, like, four or five and really dig my teeth into what's going on with them. So most of my experiences in the LARP with totems were simply players coming in, they had a pack, and right at the start of the game they were like, this is the totem we want. Okay. Fine. It was one instance where a pack formulated later on in the campaign. And so, they're all coming together, they're starting a new pack because members had died or players had left, and they had an idea in mind for a totem. One of the players in particular had gone through a huge ordeal. There was a stereotypical LARP incident where things go horribly, horribly wrong, people make really bad decisions, and one of these players got smashed on Renown, had a bunch of punishment rights thrown on her, and so she was cast back down to cub status, and she had worked her way back up and stuck it out, you know, didn't quit the character, but stuck it out. I feel like this is a player that we're just going to have to do an episode just highlighting this player running this character at some point in time to be like, hey, players, if you want to have an idea of how to come back from failure, here is your model. <laughs> right. Don't quit the character. Like, follow through. You can redeem yourself. It's fine. But anyway, yes. So <laughs> this pack had come together and it was a bunch of misfits and they'd all sort of had various degrees of slipping up and working through their problem. And so they had an mind phoenix rising from the ashes better than before and i was like this is awesome it fits with your histories and all of this stuff and so i didn't have a lot of time because i'm a storyteller and bouncing all over the place but i had them come up with their own little way of conducting this ritual they deserved phoenix they had powered through their faults in the past so i just wanted them to sort of personalize this ritual and you know we talked about this before this is one of the things i love about rituals there's sort of a guideline for how to do it in the book but ultimately you're kind of left up to your own devices to flavor it and color it however you want. And so they had sat around and they had told their stories of how they had each screwed up or made a mess of a situation and how they had stuck it out, learned from their mistakes, and come through on the other side better and stronger. And so by demonstrating their self-awareness and their desire to constantly improve and be better, no matter what happens to them, Phoenix had seen them as being worthy. And so... Bam, we have a small personal scene that's very meaningful and impactful that demonstrates all the qualities Phoenix wants. Boom, you got it. 
Great job. There's your totem. Moving on to the next scene. So this is a excellent way to handle it when you're dealing with players who are very confident and sure about what they want to do. Players who have the time both in and out of game to discuss with each other. This is what I want to do. This is our history. This is how we're going to come together. And if you're lucky to have a full session of players like that, or in Ryan's particular case, if you're in a LARP where players are just going to be forced into scenarios like that. You can only stretch a storyteller so thin before they start to sink and the quality of the game suffers. But more often than not, people come in, their first experience with Werewolf is actually not LARP, but it's tabletop with that personal storyteller. And with a lot of new players, it's like, I don't know about some of these totems. I don't know how my storyteller is going to interpret them. I do know even with veteran players, some of them will walk in and be like, oh, you have really weird ways that I am not used to of how to interpret Al. And that's cool. I like it. But I don't know how to react to the totem anymore. Mm -hmm. So this is more of a scenario how I run it, which is much slower. Very often, if packs go a very long time without a totem, I jot down... I keep my notes, and I keep tabs of that for when they finally do go to their totem, and I take all of their past events into account when I'm doing this thing. But even with all of those things taken into consideration, that still doesn't necessarily solidify something. I can give an idea of where to start pushing the players, but I feel like it's far better to still give the players an idea of what to expect and how to anticipate how these totems are going to react. So if you have questions first and foremost before you even begin the ritual, talk to your storyteller about how they deal with their totems, how they run with them. How are you doing things differently? How are you doing certain things the same? So typically when I'm a player in a tabletop, the pack is brought together by whatever intentions. Usually it's kind of scattered. Everyone is coming in with their own history and we're going to start a new pack kind of thing. Or you're a fresh cub and so you don't have all of this history to sort of bring in with you. And so the idea of having a pack totem right off the get-go is super daunting. So typically we'll go a few sessions just sort of feeling each other out before we get around to this. And when you run these, you provide everyone a good opportunity to sort of give their own personal perspectives on what they have in mind for a totem, and then you run a session to sort of flesh that out even further and find anything that was missing or highlight things that you think the pack as a whole demonstrate. Do you want to talk about that process? Yeah, absolutely. So on the back end of things, paperwork-wise, one of the things that I do is I go to each individual player and I ask them, separate from everyone else, tell me, based off of what you have read and what you understand, the three totems that you yourself, without considering anybody else, would like to follow. Who speaks to you as a player? And if you don't know, then I sit down with you and I explain to you, these are the different representatives. I basically run this entire podcast for a conversation (laughs) with an individual player. But I'll go through and I'll explain these things. And by then, players have a bit of an idea. Sometimes I even run a scene where they're like, what the hell is Chimera? What does Chimera represent? That is incredibly vague. And I will sit down and I will run a scene with them in character where they are interacting with the spirit. Giving them this opportunity, they make their three selections 
and I give preferential treatment then to these totems. I take all of them into consideration. Very frequently there's overlap. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes somebody will have totems that nobody even considered. But then we'll go ahead and then work from the opposite angle. Within that exact same conversation, I will ask them, give me one totem now that you absolutely will not follow. One totem who, within your heart of hearts, you can't see following them. And this is going to narrow down what possible totems to then work for the pack. No totem, within my logic, is going to want to be with somebody who is absolutely stands against everything that totem represents. Mm -hmm. I will absolutely allow Gitafenris to follow Pegasus if they follow what Pegasus stands for. If it's a more stereotypical Nazi get a Fenris, first and foremost, that's probably not going to be allowed in my game to begin with. But if I have that particular character that's just antagonistic to the totem, I don't want to run that totem. Mm -hmm. Simple and foremost. I call that my veto vote. This totem is off the list. You tell me, I don't want to follow Grandfather Thunder. I kind of like playing a character who is willing to sit down and work things out and be sensitive and aware of other people's needs and not be domineering, which Grandfather Thunder is going to expect of you. Mm -hmm. That's fine. That's cool. Grandfather Thunder is off the list then. Even if somebody asked for them, that's a veto vote. That narrows your list down, and that helps with better determining who to give the pack over to. And one thing I'll add to this is that you don't necessarily have to veto a spirit. And in fact, in a lot of instances, I have a hard time justifying it, especially without goofy bands. Like I know in one of your games, I was playing a Bonar who was super down with Rat. And so Owl was just right out because that ban is just offensive and bad. We'll talk about that in the next episode. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I got some good opinions there. But don't feel that you have to veto. And again, if you're going to veto, try and understand it in a more complex sense. Again, that lupus who vetoes cockroach because computers question mark, ugh, you're not understanding cockroach to begin with. Like, it bugs me. So deeply think about it and cast that vote with intention or don't cast it at all, I would say. And then working from there, once I have all that information in mind, the next thing I process is, where are they getting the right from? Who is teaching them the right? In my Scotland game, they picked up the right from individuals that follow the spirit of St. Mungo from Glasgow Cathedral. So they learned it from this very saintly, very orthodox figure from folklore. Whereas in my Oregon game, they learned it from a red talon. Very different perspectives. That's going to color this. So with my Scotland one, I ended up almost sending them on a journey that was very similar to the one that's in St. Mungo's Legends on how to get there and how to determine it. I obviously flavored it as much as I needed to. I took some twists and turns, but they started off on a boat. Whereas on my Red Talon one, I took that Red Talon perspective. I'm like, your totem is your guiding light. Your totem is what guides you to find your next meal for the day. So you know what? You are going to go three days without eating so that you have hit that point of desperation like the Red Talon feels. That helps with crafting the ritual. Once you take those into account, then comes running the ritual, which is so much fun. It is so much fun. So yeah, you've done it in a very, I'm going to say it's sort of like the old Black Isle Studios games, where there's all of these quests and problems that don't have an easy answer. 
Do you shut off the food supply to this one town because the town further west needs those supplies? Or do you try and spread them out equally? Like, they're all problems that don't have a good and evil answer. They're all value statements that are kind of gray and nebulous. And so you present these challenges that have to rely upon the players making these value statements for themselves. What is right? What is wrong? What do I value? What can I throw away? These sorts of things that require the players to sort of give their response. And from those situations, you can start to formulate, all right, you've done this and that doesn't look well in this totem's eyes, but it does in this one. And I don't know, can you give us some examples of what you've done so it's not quite as boring as I'm making it sound, I would say. So the simplest one that I can say that I came up with to explain within this podcast is the three tunnels where the group was in a cave. Down one end of the cave is a bunch of pitfalls and spikes and perilous, horrifying chances to just fall and die. On the other side is this cold, slimy, narrow pit where you have to squeeze through and try to find a way to this cold other side. And then through the final tunnel, you just hear the sound of just an inhuman monster that sounds huge, scary, and hungry. And none of these are good options, but the group needs to press forward. How do they decide to press forward? In this particular game, they split the group off so that they could scout ahead. That's something I took into account, where they sent off and had everybody analyze. But then they still had to come back together and still make a final decision when they came back. And why they made those decisions, I had them explain that to me. Well, I honestly didn't need to because they explained it as they were explaining it to each other. Mm -hmm. I took into account why somebody felt more comfortable going down the slimy tunnel that ended off in a cave that was filled with ice and just the bare minimum of supplies to keep on pressing on into just this cold wilderness. Whereas the pitfall one ended up in this pool full of just singing merfolk that enticed you down but just still gave you a little bit of an ease and then the other one had a chimera beast that would absolutely potentially eat you but was sleeping so why they made these decisions take into account how they came to these conclusions take into account the actual actions that they take is it a group that tends to split off and scout very frequently take that into account Is it a group that says, we will stick together, we will huddle close to each other throughout this whole thing, and we will not move forward until everybody has a unanimous decision? Is it a group where somebody is like, I am taking charge and the rest of you are following? That's still a decision that the group itself is making. Mm -hmm. And how the players approach it as well. Like, the tunnel that is freezing cold. The players that approach it and just tough it out and just deal with the cold and get through it. Well, that's a way that totems are going to view this, right? More warlike totems or totems of physical toughness, Borg, Fenris. Spirits like this are going to look warmly upon that. That was a weird pun. Uh, Whereas, you know, the players that light fires and carry torches and do things to mitigate the cold, well, this is different, right? Finding a heat source is adaptive. Whereas, you know, developing a mechanism to produce more heat, this all of these things are going to look better or worse for various totems. And through these series of challenges, what Amelin is doing is 
basically same thing as before, right? You're tallying up extra points for those that are appealed to, and you're eventually weeding out the ones that are falling behind. If no one is being adaptive, then after the second or third challenge, Cockroach is just going to not yep. care anymore. I usually make some sort of thing, like in the Scotland game, you guys were off on a boat pretty much the entire time, so I was like, hey, some stars are starting to fall from the sky. Yeah. This is you how- You see this constellation Should... fade away. Mm-hmm. Various little things like that. To let them know that progress is being made, but to also let them know, hey, a totem has turned away. A mm-hmm. totem is no longer interested in you. Yeah. And then, one other thing to keep in mind with that whole thing is- When you are kind of constructing these challenges, storytellers, please, 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 please avoid tribal stereotypical appeals. Mm -hmm. Do not just place a woman in danger and be like, is this how you're going to appeal to Pegasus? Yeah. Don't be obvious. Force your characters, force your players to think about their actual morals and ethics and decisions, how those impact. Players will absolutely try to game this system. They will absolutely be like, hmm, well, you put a woman in danger over there, and I want Pegasus, so I'm gonna go and save the woman. Completely ignoring that saving the woman, I don't know, might hurt a natural resource or whatever. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Just don't be obvious with it. Think about the type of character traits that these totems are going to care about. Think about compassion. Unicorn cares about that. But guess what? So does Rat. Mm-hmm. So does Pegasus. So does Owl. Owl cares about compassion. In a very different way than mm-hmm. those other ones, right? So yeah, and the more general you can make these conundrums, the easier it's going to be for the players to not think about those sorts of things. Because if they are thinking, this is the totem I want, they're not going to be role-playing their characters. But if you can give them these general questions and problems and obstacles, then they will start to just sink into their natural roleplay. And from that, you'll get more interesting results as Mm -hmm. well. You'll get more interesting answers. You will find your true followers of Rat with the players who absolutely huddle together and stick together and try to find the sneakiest ways around things than you will just being like, hey, can you go without resources for a little while? Mm -hmm. It's so much easier and so much more interesting. So then, now that we have that to consider, the last bit that I want to tell storytellers, this is going to sound mean to players, but (laughs) I feel like it's absolutely crucial. Your final challenge needs to be a no-win scenario. There's this idea in storytelling called what characters do in the dark. People who are familiar with freaking Star Wars are probably familiar with this trope. It's players and characters act very differently when they feel like they are being watched and when they feel like they are being tested. And they understand they are being tested. They are being watched throughout this. Presenting them with that no-win scenario gives you an opportunity to see that what players do in the dark setup. In my most recent game, I gave a what players do in the dark scenario and poor Ryan ran away from it. It was horrible. It was. And I completely understand. And that is a valid decision to make with this. Giving players that what do you do in the dark scenario cements what the pack more or less means to each other. What they will do in your normal game when not being 
tested like this. It's mean, and it's harrowing for your players. So be gentle, keep in mind people's triggers, but give them that no-win scenario. Mm-hmm. Because it also runs in line with the theme of the game, Werewolf the Apocalypse. The apocalypse is coming, and werewolves are losing. Mm-hmm. And totems understand this. There's just one cautionary bit I want to bring up, and that's the topic of personal pack totems. Ugh. When I ran my LARP, I had several players who wanted to do this, and it meant that when the game started, they were unwilling to pack up with other groups, which made storytelling even worse, and it limited their amount of roleplay because they didn't have an immediate pack to work with, and Werewolf is a pack-based game. It's a group-based system, and having a personal pack totem doesn't make any sense to begin with, but it limits the ability of players to work together. And so I really can't imagine any tabletop storyteller being okay with this. And if you're running a LARP, one of the things I would have done differently is I would have just said no to personal pack totems. And almost all of those players eventually dropped out because they didn't have a network to work with. They were all by themselves and no one wanted to have a tag along. So yeah, personal pack totems. It's a short term bonus point game on your sheet that inevitably players will hurt you in the long run. Yeah, and of course the players always did it for the bonus. Mm -hmm. One thing that I will say that you can probably do to help avoid this is I have a little house rule that very frequently gets applied when it comes to Ride of the Totem. And that is something I like to call Pack XP. Pack XP is a house rule I came up with a little while back, where in addition to normal personal XP that you award for showing up, and playing good games, and surviving scenarios, and all of that, for every time the group displays good teamwork with each other, rather it's pre-planning, what they're wanting to do, really good roleplay with each other, where they're bantering off of each other, very good group cohesion, I give them a pack XP. Pack XP is a pool that any player in your pack can dip into and apply to your sheet. But with the caveat of everybody in the pack has to agree to it. And this rule has worked wonders for my table, both for giving people reasons to talk and debate and really get into, like, what do I want for a totem? Because that's generally the first thing that they buy with that pack XP. Mm-hmm. But just working together in general, you get so many less players who are like, oh, I'm the loner, and I don't, man, I don't work with others too well, because I'm just, I'm too cool for this group, but I need to, you know, I need the group in order to actually play, so I'll still play. It cuts down on that horrible, horrible attitude so much, because the group has to be trained then in order to work together. You can't dip into that until you get anybody else's approval. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so then, with that, I think we've covered everything we need to. Yeah, but I hope this was helpful if you're considering running it or doing it as a player. Both of these are very different in their approach, but I think it adds a lot of meaning to the experience. This is a very significant moment 
in a PAX history to do this. Mm -hmm. And I think having this as an in-game experience adds so much to that. It's something where you can come in and have your own say, but it feeds into the will of the group and you get something that is more meaningful and purposeful and oftentimes surprising. It's not what you expected, but it feels more like a natural fit for your pack rather than something where you're tempted to think, you know, this spirit's boon is really, really good and we want this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think it works out very, very well in this fashion. Mm -hmm. And it honestly leads to happier storytellers and happier storytellers are better for your game. Yep. So then, working then from this... You mentioned before what our next episode is going to be that ties into this topic very well. Very well. So, totemic spirits have a boon and a bane. The boon is usually, like, you know, mechanical, a bunch of super awesome stuff. Banes are, as a whole, really, really poorly conceived. Some of them are perfect. They're great. They're wonderful. We'll talk about those next time. Most of them, we want to stomp into the mud. So... Join us next time when we stomp a bunch of them into the mud and offer our personal suggestions as to ways to make them better for your role-playing experience. Absolutely. And or at the very least, come up with better ones on your own. Yeah. Owl's ban is dumb. <laughs> it's dumb. Yeah. It's not as bad as Black Unicorn. <laughs> Black Unicorn as a spirit is dumb. Yeah. See you next time. <laughs> break room where we advocate that storytellers don't put so much work into building their games particularly for something as small as simple rights players can go from zero to five on anything on their sheet without consequence or can simply just grab for something and expect it to work out for them that's what Pentex advocates. Trust us, we will provide. Have a good day! <laughs>